Well, listeners, you're listening to 3CR and this is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for Defence Government Schools and we're here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. We have a website and we try to put up a press release every week or two and um, this week is no exception. We have a press release 992 uh, at our website www.adogs.info. And here is Dale going to read it for us. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. This is press release 992, Teacher Shortages and the State Aid Funding Issue. Current teacher shortages, growing inequalities in the Australian education system and the decentralisation or school autonomy fashion are all intimately related. Common sense and historical experience indicate that the funding of a dual system of education in which the two systems have diametrically opposed objectives is going to lead to inequalities and a wastage of human potential. The public funding of a private system which chooses children on the basis of class, creed and colour can never be reconciled with a public system open to all children and dependent upon public funding. It is also common sense that well-qualified and experienced teachers require a decent salary, security of tenure, curriculum support from a well-funded central administration and relief from onerous administrative tasks that take them out of the classroom. State aid to private schools started as a trickle in the 1960s and in 2023, billions of dollars later, has now reached the stage where they are publicly overfunded while public schools go begging. It is little wonder that Australia has now one of the most segregated systems in the Western world and teachers are walking away from their classrooms. In the last week, two interesting articles have attempted to come to grips with the equity and school autonomy problems. Professor Passy Salberg of the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, University of Melbourne, has produced a paper entitled Achieving Equity in Education is Contingent on Clearly Defining It while Trevor Cobold of Save Our Schools has reproduced a speech he gave to a forum at Deakin University to launch a report on school autonomy reform and social justice in Australian public education. These academic analyses are full of valuable ideas and statistics, but those defining equity and equality of opportunity do not grasp the idea of schools themselves being equal and equally open to all children, employees and parents. Most contemporary commentators are reluctant to confront the powerful religious lobby, concentrate on the wealthy schools in the equity debate, avoiding the diametrically opposed objectives of the two systems. A good place to start might be that only schools which are public in purpose, outcome, access, ownership and control, as well as publicly accountable through a strong centralised administration, should be publicly funded. Our 19th century forefathers understood these basic principles derived from common sense and withdrew funding from schools that selected children on the basis of class, creed and colour. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, uh, most of the uh, commentators who are supporting public schools, of course, 
I think that state aid to private schools is a dumb deal. Uh, so they're looking for um, compromises, which means looking at the wealthy schools uh, rather than the disadvantaged all the time and cutting them back. But even that won't work. Uh, it has never worked because there's no way of compromising very often with uh, religious men who want power and money. That's the dog's position. That's why we are just anti-state aid to private schools. And our, um, our, our experience is that there is no compromise. But um, someone's going to read us the SOS article by Trevor Cobalt on school autonomy and social justice in education. And next week, we will uh, bring to you uh, Achieving Equity in Education is contingent on clearly defining it by Parsi Solberg. But over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. So this article is entitled School Autonomy and Social Justice in Education and was written by Trevor Kobold. First of all, I would like to congratulate the project team on its work. It has provided one of the most comprehensive reviews of the literature on school autonomy and contributed greatly to our knowledge about the implementation of school autonomy in Australian schools and its impact on students, teachers and principals. Rather than review the array of its findings, I would like to focus on the key issues. The meaning of social justice in education, school autonomy and student achievement, school autonomy and the bureaucratization of schooling. What is social justice in education? The report seeks to examine the social justice implications of school autonomy. This is a critically important project. Achieving social justice in education is the most fundamental challenge facing Australia's education system. It is important to be clear on what social justice in education means. I see social justice and equity in education as broadly equivalent concepts, and I use them interchangeably. My justification is that the term equity captures the justice of a given state of affairs. Clearly defining what is meant by social justice and equity is the first step towards achieving it. If we don't define where we are going, no path will take us there. Instead, we wander around in a policy labyrinth while many students are denied an adequate education and large achievement gaps between privileged and less privileged students are ongoing. The failure to define social justice and equity in education has resulted in different interpretations, inadequate targets, ineffective monitoring and the sad fact that no one is held responsible for inequities in our education systems. It allows governments to try avoid avoid accountability for the lack of progress on equity. They can continue to mouth the rhetoric without being called to account. The lack of clear definition also allows politicians and the media to scapegoat schools, teachers and parents. For instance... Recall the slandering of public school teachers by the former Commonwealth Acting Minister for Education and now notorious Stuart Robert, and the abominable portrayal of low socioeconomic status parents by former New South Wales Minister Prue Goward, who called them a dysfunctional and lazy underclass that neglects their children. 
The failure to include a clear equity goal in the national goals of schooling has allowed governments, regardless of hue, to misdirect large funding increases to the more privileged private sector and deny adequate funding for the vast majority of low socioeconomic status, SES, Indigenous, remote area and disability students who attend public schools. The report ventures a definition. Its focus is economic injustice, namely inequalities between schools in low SES, rural, remote and more privileged areas in terms of their access to human and material resources. Finding One defines socially just schooling as the equitable distribution of resources to improve students' school experiences and outcomes. However, with respect, it is not clear what a socially just distribution of human and material resources looks like. One common interpretation is that it means the resources needed to provide equality of opportunity to learn. But what happens if some students don't achieve expected outcomes? Who is at fault? The focus on inputs makes it too easy to blame the students, their parents or their social group, as do the Prue Gowards of the world and those who view student achievements as mainly genetically determined. Those who don't succeed are judged as failing to take up their opportunity to learn or as incapable of succeeding. It releases governments and education policy makers from responsibility for ensuring equity in school outcomes. Providing the resources for equal opportunity to learn does not require any particular level of achievement for all students. It is consistent with wide inequalities in outcomes between students from different social backgrounds. Continuing inequity may be legitimised because all children have the opportunity to learn. I think we have to flip the equation. We should focus on what is social justice or equity in outcomes and then determine what resources are necessary to achieve it. Education resources are a means to an end which must be defined. Parsi Salberg and I, Trevor Cobalt, have proposed a dual equity objective. Equity should have regard to the minimum levels of achievement expected for all students and the relative distribution of outcomes between different social groups. From an individual perspective, equity should mean that all students, whatever their background, are equipped with knowledge, skills and understandings to help them to live a decent life, choose their own path in society and participate effectively in the processes and institutions of society. We call this an adequate education. In today's society, it means successfully completing Year 12 or its equivalent. From a social perspective, equity means that students from different social groups should achieve similar average outcomes and similar range of outcomes. We call this social equity in education. Large disparities in education outcomes means that the social group individuals are born into strongly affects their life opportunities. Large disparities in school outcomes according to different social backgrounds entrench inequality and discrimination in society. Students from more privileged backgrounds have greater access to higher incomes, higher status occupations and positions of wealth, influence and power in society than students from more disadvantaged backgrounds. The social equity goal should be to close the gaps in education attainment measures between such groups. 
In what follows, I explore some of the system-level effects of the implementation of school autonomy in New South Wales as a case study to complement the report's findings. In a revealing paper, the former president of the New South Wales Teachers' Federation, Maury Mulleran, said the decade following the the introduction of the New South Wales Local Schools Local Decisions School Autonomy Program was a lost decade. It certainly was a lost decade in the failure to address high social inequity in school outcomes and the diversions of substantial funding to non-teaching and non-school staff. School autonomy and student achievement. The commonly stated goal of school autonomy is to improve student outcomes. In the interests of brevity, I focus on social equity outcomes for Year 9 students in New South Wales. I examined the NAPLAN results in reading, writing and numeracy for low SES, Indigenous and remote area students. For each group, I considered the proportion not achieving the national benchmark standards, NAPLAN scores and achievement gap with high SES students since 2010. Thus, there are nine indicators of achievement for each group, giving 27 in total. They show shocking inequalities in school outcomes between the highly advantaged and disadvantaged students in New South Wales, with few improvements since 2010. There were no achievement improvements by low SES Year 9 students and declines in some areas. For example, the percentage of low SES Year 9 students not achieving the reading standard increased from 19% in 2010 to 28% in 2022, and the percentage below the writing standard increased from 30% in 2011 to 35% in 2022. Reading, writing, and numeracy scores all declined, and achievement gaps between high and low SES students of about four years of learning remained. Indigenous education is one area of significant improvement. For example, the percentage not achieving the writing benchmark fell from 44% in 2011 to 38% in 2022. Writing and numeracy scores improved, but there was little change in reading. There were large reductions in the writing and numeracy gaps between Indigenous and high SES students. There was little change in the proportion of remote area Year 9 students not achieving the reading and writing standards, but the proportion below the reading standard fell. There was also little change in NAPLAN scores and achievement gaps against high SES students remained large. In summary, none of the nine achievement indicators for the low SES students showed any improvement, while six showed declining achievement. Six of the nine indicators for Indigenous students show increasing achievements, whilst only three show improvement by remote area students. All of this supports finding one of the report that the school autonomy does not necessarily improve social justice and equity in education. I suggest that funding is a critical factor. More autonomy for schools to identify and meet the special needs of their community means little in the absence of adequate funding. Increased targeting funding for Indigenous students in the context of local decision-making is likely to have contributed to improving outcomes for these students. 
However, funding cuts to New South Wales public schools in the initial years of school autonomy and the diversion of subsequent funding increases to non-teaching and non-school staff instead of teachers has restricted school efforts to increase social justice and equity in education. School autonomy and increasing bureaucratisation. As Maury Mulleran outlined in his paper, the origins of local schools' local decisions were cabinet in confidence reports to the New South Wales government by Boston Consulting and, wait for it, PwC. Cost-cutting was their original goal. The purpose of the Boston Consulting report was to identify significant expenditure in savings in the department. It said that cost-cutting through de-evolution could provide opportunities worth 500 to 700 million in recurrent costs. The strategy of the PWC report was to empower school principals to manage school-based expenditures and drive down costs whilst maintaining education outcomes. The recommendations were taken up by the New South Wales Commission of Audit in 2012. It supported de-evolution of authority and accountability to schools to increase efficiency in expenditure. The outcome was local schools, local decisions. Funding for public schools failed to keep up with costs from 2012 to 2016, meaning there was a fall in funding adjusted for inflation. Since then, funding has increased, but part of it was used for huge increases in non-teaching staff in schools and in central office. Under local schools' local decisions, central support structures for schools were dismantled. As Mulleran points out, major job losses occurred in teaching and learning support, including curriculum support, professional development, drug and alcohol education, student welfare, student behaviour, the equity unit, rural education and special education. Non-teaching staff in schools increased by much more than teachers from 2012 to 2022, with the biggest increases occurring from 2016. Total non-teaching staff in primary schools increased by 44%, compared to an increase in teachers of 12%. Non-teaching staff in secondary schools increased by 26%, while teachers fell by 3%. The largest increase in non-teaching staff in schools was for the administrative and clerical staff. They increased by 48% in primary schools and 32% in secondary schools. The increases in administrative staff also far exceeded the increases in enrolment. Over five times the increase in enrolments in primary schools and 30 times the increase in secondary schools. There was also a huge increase in central and regional office staff. They increased by 132%, which was 26 times the increase in all teachers and 22 times the increase in enrolments. Since 2015, when detailed figures were first published, executive staff increased by a massive 390%. Specialist support staff increased by 132%, and administrative and clerical staff by 108%. Over the same period, teachers increased by only 5%, and students by 6%. Overall, the growth in the number of non-teaching staff in schools and non-school staff increased by more than the number of teachers. 
non-teaching staff in schools increased by 6,155 and non-school staff by 2,755, compared with 2,742 in the number of teachers. It is incredible that under a school autonomy program, the increase in department staff exceeded the increase in teachers. Public schools in New South Wales and elsewhere are subject to widespread accountability measures that have driven the huge increase in administrative staff in central office and in schools. The Department of Education is focused primarily on reporting and compliance roles rather than curriculum, teaching and learning support. Its detailed organisational chart shows that the vast majority of its branches are devoted to administration of finance, policing compliance to regulations, performance monitoring, human resource management and other corporate functions. Of some 55 branches, less than 10 could be considered as directly involved in supporting teaching and learning. Despite the huge increase in administrative staff, the workload of teachers has not diminished. Instead, the administration load for principals and teachers has increased. School leaders and teachers are working longer hours on accountability measures, filling out endless forms and writing reports for central office is part and parcel of the life of principals and teachers. Apart from the increases in non-teaching staff, the New South Wales Department of Education has increased its use of consultants, which is a further drain on the direct funding of schools. Payments to consultants increased from $1.5 million in 2014 to $10.6 million in 2021, a seven-fold increase. In 2022, the department let contracts with consultants worth $17.4 million, most of them which were with Deloitte, Ernest & Young, KPMG and PwC. Conclusions and further research. The experience with school autonomy in the New South Wales public school system tends to confirm finding one of the report that school autonomy does not necessarily lead to more socially just schooling. I would add that the broadly similar results have occurred in other states. For example, continuing inequities in school outcomes and increasing bureaucratization are features of the Victorian education system. It is apparent that a considerable part of the small increase in real funding for public schools has been devoted to non-teaching staff in schools and non-school staff. The large increases in non-teaching and non-school staff have far outstripped the growth in enrolments and teachers. It has undoubtedly diverted much-needed funding from directly supporting learning in the classroom. However, more sophisticated statistical analysis of the impact of school autonomy is necessary because many factors influence education outcomes, funding, student demography, school attendance, economic equality, etc. Clearly, the failure to adequately fund public schools has been a critical factor behind the failure to improve equity in schooling. The way school autonomy has been implemented together with the failing the funding failures of governments have been factors behind this failure. Further research on the impact of school autonomy on student achievement to examine the experiences of the introduction of independent public schools in Western Australia and Queensland. 
We know which schools have had this status when they were admitted. This makes it possible to compare before and after results, taking account of the changes in the background of students. It is also possible to do a comparison of student achievement and changes in the demographic profile and funding of similar schools that were not admitted to the program. This would help a better understanding of the impact of school autonomy. And we have a comment here from a very familiar name. Jean Ely says, There were good reasons why the New South Wales education system centralised in the first place in the 19th century. It was necessary to fund the schools adequately from the public treasury. Local funding was never sufficient. It was necessary to support teaching staff. It was necessary to train teaching staff. And even the local boards demanded it. Above all, it was necessary for proper public accountability. The private religious sector was the only group that opposed the centralised administration. But in the 20th century, the private sector has centralised with powerful, well-funded administrative lobby groups, while the public sector supportive administration has been dismantled at the state level. Meanwhile, the newly arrived Canberra administrations are evaluating and constantly telling teachers what to do without adequate funding or support. Fantastic article there, very informative, and a great comment to top it all off with. Back over to you, Jean. Yes, well, that's a pretty meaty article, and, of course, Trevor Cobalt's articles always are, and if you actually go and have a look at it, you'll see that he's got lots and lots and lots of facts and figures to back up his argument. But um, I think it's time for a break, don't you? It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Yes, well, uh, thank you for uh, staying listening to us after that meeting beginning. But uh, we're going to have another interesting uh, article which comes from the Rationalist Society website. Uh, They have worked out that the Labor Party is set to ditch the support for secular public education and Sorrell is going to tell us about that also. Thanks, Jean. This article is Labor Party Set to Ditch Support for Secular Public Education, written by C. Gladman for the Rationalist Society. Anthony Albanese's Labor Party is set to formally ditch its support for secular public education, having disregarded concerns raised by members during the consultation process on the party's key policy document. A revised version of the party's national platform has not reincorporated the party's previous express comment to universal, free and secular public education. This revised version of the policy document will be presented to the party's national conference in Brisbane on 17th to the 19th of August. 
The Rationalist Society of Australia, the RSA, reported in early June that the initial draft policy developed in May and shared with party members for feedback removed the party's long-held commitment to universal, free and secular public education. As a result of this change, the draft policy document no longer contained any reference to the word secular. In 2021, Labor's national platform stated that the party believe every Australian child in every community should have access to high-quality, universal, free, secular government schooling. The RSA understands that the removal of support for secular public education raised concerns for a number of current and former Labor members of Parliament, and while many rank-and-file members who demanded that the party reinsert the reference into the policy document. The revised version of the national platform has strengthened the party's commitment to the LGBTQIA plus community following a public backlash to apparent backtracking in the earlier draft version. In the education section of the current draft policy, the party commits to ensuring that schools are socially inclusive and support a diverse society. Elsewhere in the document, the party also committed to its vision of Australia being a multicultural, multi-faith nation. And this is an excerpt from that document. Labour is the party for and of multiculturalism. Labour is determined to ensure that the benefits of our diversity are fully realised. This requires political leadership supporting multiculturalism, greater engagement with the full diversity of culturally, religiously and linguistically diverse Australians and a commitment to secure inclusive institutions to ensure no one is left behind. Despite the commitment to multiculturalism and diversity, many Labour governments, including the federal government, continue to require that only Christian prayers be read aloud at the opening of Parliament each day. As a result, many non-religious members of Parliament and people of other faiths are obliged to observe Christian prayers as part of their work. RSA President Dr Meredith Doig is urging Labour to start walking the talk on multiculturalism by reforming institutions such as parliaments to make sure they are more inclusive. Thanks, and back over to you, Jean. Yes, well, uh, secular, the word secular is a, is a very special word. It means non-religious. It, it belongs to the secular world, the secular if you want to go back to um, the ancient world, uh, it's distinct from the divine or the religious. Um, it's not anti-religious, it is non-religious. And we believe that state schools should be non-religious because they should be open to everybody with offence to none. And so many of the problems in the world, so many of the conflicts, so many of the terrible wars of this world have been about religion. And we want our children to learn to live with each other and not to be divided along the, along the lines of religious belief. But um, our time has now come to go overseas with Jeff. So off we go with Jeff to the United States of America and a strange place it is too. Jean, and we're going to start today with a spooky story about AI. Uh, and Republicans. 
from the United States, and this is an article by Andrew Tarantola, which appeared in Engadget, uh, which is an online news service, and um, dated the 14th of August 23, and it's entitled, An Iowa School District is Using AI to Ban Books. Um, it certainly didn't take long for AI's other shoe to drop, he says. What with the emergent technology already being perverted to commit confidence scams and generate spam content? We can now add censorship to that list, as the Globe Gazette reports. The school board of Mason City, Iowa, has begun leveraging AI technology to cultivate lists of potentially bannable books from the district's libraries ahead of the 23-24 school year. In May, the Republican-controlled state legislature passed and Governor Kim Reynolds subsequently signed Senate File 496, which enacted sweeping changes to the state's education curriculum. Specifically, it limits what books can be made available in school libraries and classrooms, requiring titles to be age-appropriate and without descriptions or visual depictions of the sex act, per Iowa Code 702. But ensuring that every book in the district's archive adhere to these new rules is quickly turning into a mammoth undertaking. Our classroom and school libraries have vast collections consisting of text purchased, donated and found, Bridget Exman, uh, Assistant Superintendent of Curriculum and Instruction at Mason City Community School District, said in a statement, it's simply not feasible to read every book and filter for these new requirements. As such, the Mason City School District is bringing in AI uh, to pass suspect tests for banned ideas and descriptions since there are simply too many titles for human reviewers to cover on their own. Per the district, a master list is first cobbled together from several sources based on whether there were previous complaints about of sexual content. Books in that list are then scanned by AI software, which tells the state censors whether or not there are actually uh, whether whether or not there is actually a depiction of sex in the book. Frankly, we have more important things to do than spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to protect kids from books. Xman told Popular Sci via email. At the same time, we do have a legal and ethical obligation to comply with the law. Our goal here is really a defensible process. So far, the artificial intelligence has flagged 19 books for removal. They are Killing Mr Griffin by Lois Duncan, Sold by Patricia Cormack, A Court of Mist and Fury by Sarah Mass, Monday's Not Coming by Tiffany Jackson, Tricks by Ellen Hopkins, 19 Minutes by Jodie Pucot, The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, that's that's interesting, isn't it? Beloved by Tony Morrison, Looking for Alaska by John Green, The Kite Runner by Khalid Cossini, Crank by Ellen Hopkins, Thirteen's Reasons Why by Jay Asher, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie, An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser, The Colour Purple by Alice Walker, Feed by M.T.J. Anderson, Friday Night Lights by Buzz Bazinger, Gossip Girl by Cecily von Zygeser, and I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. Well, I think Americans are becoming caged birds if AI is uh, able to uh, pick and choose the curriculum or even just the books in the library. Um, quite a sad indication of how Republicans and Conservatives in general are using technology now to assist their censorship. Anyway, uh, we, as usual, go to our regular blog uh, 
guru, uh, Diana Ravitch now, she's got a story from, about from North Carolina where voucher schools get tax dollars with no rules or accountability from August 13th. And she says, Public Schools First, North Carolina, which is an organisation, posted the following critique of the state's newly expanded voucher program. Before it passed, the parent-led group projected that costs would soar to $550 billion annually as a result from removing income limits instead of saving poor kids from failing schools. Vouchers have become a way to subsidise the tuition of students from middle-income and upper-income families who never attended any public school. Should teachers have some type of educational background or teaching licence? Should schools that receive public dollars provide transparency for how those dollars are spent? Should North Carolinians expect to know how well students in schools funded by tax dollars are learning? Should we have some assurance that our tax dollars are not being used to discriminate against groups of students and or parents? Should the governing body, a school board of each district, be elected to represent the community it serves and held accountable by voters and taxpayers? Whether your answer to these questions is yes or no, the, de the degree to which schools actually have policies in place or are regulated in a way to address these problems depends entirely on whether they are traditional public schools, charter schools or private schools, even though all of them may be funded by our tax dollars. With massive North Carolina private school voucher program expansion in the proposed House and Senate budgets, it's worth examining which policies apply to which schools and how much public knows the public knows about the schools they're funding. Although more than 70% of the US population lives in households without a school-aged child, having a well-educated citizenry affects everyone. So accounting for how tax dollars is, are spent is important. The North Carolina Department of Administration, Division of Public Education, non-public education, sorry, registers and monitors both conventional private schools and home schools. Each year, the division publishes a report containing the publicly available information on private schools. It's a thin three-page report with minimal information. Number of students by school, county and year, number and percentage of school by type, i.e. independent or religious, and number and percentage of students by sex, male or female. Taxpayers funding school vouchers see no budget on how their money is being spent and there are no public meetings or ways to give the public uh, knowledge about the input on schools and procedures and policies. No information is provided by these private schools about student achievement or popula population subgroups, such as special ed, English learner, race, ethnicity or family income status. Lacking any such data, it's difficult for the public to know whether students are learning or if schools are discriminating against students and families. In fact, although voucher-accepting private schools are required to administer an achievement test each year, they're allowed to select the test, be in charge of how it is administered, and the results are not made publicly available. So the public is left with no objective measure of whether students are learning anything at all. Traditional public schools and charter schools are required to follow the state standard course of study and show assessment results, but voucher-receiving private schools have no curriculum guidelines at all. In fact, they could even operate under an unschooling philosophy while accepting public tax dollars. In traditional school, public schools, 100% of the teaching staff must have a licence or be working towards one to provide instruction to our children. In charter schools, the requirement if that is that just 50% of the teachers must be certified, and in private schools, the requirement drops to zero. Teachers do not need to be certified, nor do they have, nor do they have to even have a college degree. 
Traditional public schools and charter schools must also provide a minimum of 185 days of instruction across at least nine months. Private schools have no minimum days or hours of instruction. They're simply required to provide some instruction across nine months in a given year. Private schools are also allowed to determine their own policies and procedures for handling excessive student absences, including the maximum number of days a student may be absent and remain enrolled. <clears throat> Compare this to the requirement we place on public schools for students in attendance and related retention policies. Although the state law does pro prohibit private schools from discriminating on the basis of race, colour or national origin, with no tracking mechanism in place to show that they comply, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> or not making it a toothless requirement. And to date, state law does not require vouchers receiving private schools to follow other federal non-discrimination laws, such as the Americans with Disabilities Act or Title IX. Uh, yet they would, be, they would receive public tax dollars. In contrast to the absence of private school data, North Carolina, Carolina Department of Public Instruction makes extensive and detailed data available about student achievement, demographics and school finances for tra traditional public schools and some data about charter schools. The public can find out how many students achieving a passing score on state tests, what a school what a school or district's demographic makeup looks like and how it has changed over time, whether the students fall into special needs categories, how many disciplinary actions occurred in a given year, how much money was spent on teachers and textbooks versus facilities, and answers to just about any other question one can ask about schools. There is a full transparency for tax dollars at work with public schools. Annual public audits of the financial books is required by state law and available to the public. Traditional public school leadership is also open to public scrutiny, as the past few years have highlighted. Traditional school boards must conduct some public meetings and provide an opportunity for public comment. Not so for charter and private schools. There is no public input required or allowed. In addition, all traditional public school board members must live within their school district and have to be elected by registered voters. These elected board members represent the communities they serve where all citizens, whether parents or not, can vote in school board elections. However, only 50% of charter school board members must reside in North Carolina and elections are not required. There are no residency or election requirements for private school board meetings, members along with no requirement that the governing boards even be shown public, publicly. Uh, all North Carolinians deserve to know whether their tax dollars are being spent responsibly to create a better community for everyone. Comparing requirements between traditional public schools and private schools reveals stark differences. When tax dollars are being spent to support private schools, the public needs accountability to prevent financial fraud and poor student outcomes. More transparency for how voucher-receiving private schools use their private funds would also help legislators make more informed budgetary and policy decisions and evaluate the value of the money spent. Transparency and meaningful data are important requirements when hard-earned tax dollars are funneled into unaccountable private schools, the same information we expect from publicly funded private schools. Isn't it curious that many of the same people who demanded strict accountability for public schools insist on no accountability for voucher schools? Isn't that um, the, the duplicity that we see here in Australia? Um, so very similar. Anyway, well, the last article, we got to nip across to uh, the UK, and it is an interesting article um, from August 9th by Kafir Ahmad that's in the Analyst News um, on, online site. 
under religion. And she says, it's time to end mandatory Christian worship in British schools. Uh, a new census data and report on religion in the UK call into question the long-standing relationship between the Church of England and British public schools. She says, it's an oft-forgotten fact that seems at odds with Britain's claims of religious freedom. Since the inception of the 1944 Education Act, all publicly funded primary schools across Britain are required to hold a daily act of collective worship that is broadly Christian in nature. Collective Christian worship in public schools has been, has been a long-standing concern amongst British secularists and children's rights organisations, even drawing a few high-profile lawsuits and a UN recommendation to repeal the mandate. While the law is often ignored by public schools, government officials announced in 2021 that they would indeed investigate allegations that the mandate was being violated. But recent, recent census data on the country's changing religious demographics plus a new landmark government-funded report demands a renewed consideration of the law's place in a modern UK. The Church of England knows it's fighting a losing battle against the decline of Christianity in the UK, says Megan Manson, an advocate for secular values at the National Secular Society. Forcing Christian worship in schools helps to legitimise it in places public, uh, its place in public life by normalising it from the moment a British citizen starts school. There's a vague hope that compelling schools to hold daily acts of collective worship may slow Christianity's decline by encouraging children to become Christians. The Church of England knows it's fighting a losing, losing battle against the decline of Christianity in the UK. Forcing Christian worship in schools helps to legitimise its place in public life. Late last year, data from the nation's newest census revealed that England is no longer a Christian majority country, with less than 50% of Britons now identifying as Christian. According to the 2021 census, only 7.5 million people in England and Wales identify as Christian, 5.5 million fewer than in 2011 when the last census took place. The number of practising Christians regularly attending church in the UK has also decreased to 5%. Each successive generation is somewhat less religious than the one before, says demographer and sociologist of religion David Voas. This is a phenomenon that's been observed at least in the Western world since the late 19th century, but the church is still very active in all sorts of spheres of public life, with education being the most obvious of them. Should that be the case? Britain's growing pool of secularist and non-Christian voices say that such data demands the government rethink the long-standing relationship between the church and state, particularly when it comes to ed education. So too does Britain's outgoing government faith engagement advisor, Colin Bloom, former head of Conservative Christian Fellowship Group, uh, which helped put religion at the forefront of the party's agenda. Nearly four years in the making, Bloom's new 165-page state-funded report, Does Government Do God?, examines how the government can better engage and deal with faith groups in the UK. Outlining deep public concerns relating to religious radicalisation and child abuse, the report urged greater government oversight and unregistered and unregulated uh, faith-based schools over there, including out-of-school settings such as Jewish yeshivas, Islamic madrasas and Sunday schools. Bloom's views largely reflect those of his boss, Michael Gove, head of the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities. Department for Leveling Up, that's a beauty. Following the so-called so Trojan horse affair, Gove, who was an education secretary when the scandal erupted, was outspoken about the need to prevent British madrasas 
Islamic educational institutions from spreading religious extremism and have all schools promote so-called British values. The 2013 Trojan Horse Affair was a national scandal that set off when the Birmingham City Council received an anonymous letter believed to be correspondence between Muslims plotting to take over local schools and run them with strict Islamic laws. The letter was debunked as a fake, but allegations made as a result led to emergency inspections from Ofsted, the UK's regulatory agency for education, of 21 Islamic schools. Several schools saw their ratings drop from an outstanding to inadequate. About 15 teachers faced disciplinary action, which was dismissed in all but one case. The main concern about these schools, they had become too Islamic, that they had crossed the boundary of compulsory religious education. But in an education system that is not secular, such as Britain's, where is that boundary? Indeed, when former Prime Minister David Cameron wanted to clamp down on Islamic madrasas, he only stopped when the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, warned that by doing so, he would make running Sunday schools harder. About 25% of primary schools in Britain are Church of England, uh, schools. If the government increases its scrutiny of Islamic, Jewish and other independent religi religious schools, then it's only fair that the government apply the same standards and scrutiny to Christian schools. Uh, with Christianity no longer a majority, it seems especially important to turn our attention towards disentangling Christianity from public schooling. Rather than targeting the country's growing population of Muslims and other religious minorities. Despite being a democracy, the UK is the only Western nation where collective Christian prayer at school is a legal requirement. Mandating that children collectively pray in a Christian manner, experts say, will inevitably lead to inequality and discrimination against children who hold different religious beliefs. All state-funded schools should be inclusive places where children and families from all faith and belief backgrounds are treated equally, Manson says. If collective worship laws exist, this can never be realised. That's why they need to be repealed urgently. Advocates of church-state separation believe that the, mandates vi the mandate violates every child's right to free thought, conscience and religion under the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child. In fact, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child has repeatedly called upon the UK to repeal legal provisions for compulsory attendance at collective worship in publicly funded schools. Just a few weeks ago, at the coronation of King Charles, the monarch was anointed with holy oil and swore an oath to maintain the Protestant Reformed religion established by law and preserve inviolably the settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine, worship, discipline and government thereof. But King Charles, in attempting to reflect the religious diversity of Britain, has also suggested he seeks to be a defender of all faiths. In an interview explaining this view, he described his desire to ensure the inclusion of other people's faith, faiths and reflect their freedom to worship in this country. This inclusion and freedom should be clear in all aspects of society, starting with the morning assemblies at Britain's public schools. And with that, I will pass back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. The news about the use of the AI is very opposite, isn't it? Because uh, it's uh, relevant to Australia too. Uh, we haven't yet uh, fully come to terms with the use of AI, chat GP and one thing or another. We're very, very much indebted to Jeff for keeping us up to date with the overseas developments. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
but we always like to end on a happy note. And here is our great state school of the week. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's Great State School of the Week is Whittlesea Primary School. So here's a bit of the profile from the school's website. Whittlesea Primary School is located in a picturesque township just south of the Great Dividing Range, 39 kilometres north of Melbourne and only eight minutes drive beyond the northern suburbs. Their priority at Whittlesea is to meet and challenge the individual learning needs of the students and to enhance their learning opportunities and achievement. Whittlesea Primary School's underlying philosophy is to facilitate lifelong development and growth of children so that they can achieve their full potential as individuals and as members of a local and global community. Parents, students and staff are strongly encouraged to work together in partnership, recognising the shared expectations of respect your school, do your best and help others succeed. As a community of learners, it's their mission to be the best that they can be. The school vision at Whittlesea Primary School, the student is at the centre of everything they do. Uh, their vision is to be an inclusive community where learning is highly valued. They strive to develop and support the emotional, social and physical well-being of the whole child. They strive to create a positive climate for learning that encourages all children to become collaborative and innovative members of local and global communities. Now some facts and figures from Akara. The school has 420 pupils and the ICSIA value of the school is 988 which is well below the average of 1000. The students are mainly from disadvantaged backgrounds. Only 8% have parents from the highest income quartile. Uh, 20% in the second highest, 38% from the third income quartile and 34% of students have parents from the poorest 25% of the community. 4% uh, of students speak a language other than English and 5% five are, are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school full of semi-rural students with dedicated principal and teachers. It costs the taxpayer $14,134 to send a student to this school, which is just above the Gonski Resource Standard. The school receives only $1.13 million from the federal government and $4.29 million from the state government. It gets $115,713 from fees and $117,000 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have only been $434,000. So all of this public and private money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results indicate that the children in this school are progressing as well and better than those in similar schools. So congratulations to everyone there at Whittlesea Primary School. You are our great state school of the week. It's a lovely, happy school and it's actually very close to a great big water slide. So, um, yes, the people in Whittlesea are a happy lot. Uh, it's the centre. It's the centre of a of a rural district, 
and so close to Melbourne too. So that is our program for this week and we hope you enjoyed it and we hope that you will be back with us next week and if you want to find out more about us, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. But from Dale and from Sorrel and from Jeff and from myself, it is bye for now. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.